Hi everyone, Brian here, and we have a great episode today with Steve Rader from NASA uh, coming up to talk about innovation in just a minute. Uh, but first, uh, just as a reminder, if you lost your job uh, due to the coronavirus and you need any type of help, um, perhaps a resume review or a connection to someone in my network on LinkedIn, please email me at brian at designingforanalytics.com. That's B-R-I-A-N. Uh, and let me know. I would love to help you out if I can. Uh, also, I just recently posted a COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition dashboard audit on my website. Um, I've been uh, helping out a MITRE uh, in the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition uh, working group in the analytics space uh, on this tool, which is for U.S. Uh, state and regional um, policymakers uh, as they begin to consider reopening their various regions. So, uh, the audit takes a look at the design of this dashboard, the version one iteration that the team was uh, working on. And I kind of go through my uh, recommended changes uh, and how I do uh, user interface audits. So uh, feel free to check that out. Uh, just go to my website, find the insights page in the nav bar, and you'll see an, uh, a link to the article uh, down in the middle of the page. Uh, and finally, uh, I recently launched my new self-guided video course called Designing Human-Centered Data Products. Um, you might have heard about this in the last episode, but if you are a data science analytics or technical product management leader looking for a step-by-step -step framework to design more engaging decision support applications and data products, or you, if you have staff members that are uh, you know, really good at the technical side, but they're not so good at making uh, the solution simple and effective, um, I'll have more information on that course um, later on in the episode, so I hope you'll check that out. And now uh, let's jump in and talk to NASA's Steve Rader about open innovation. You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill. Uh, today I have Steve Rader on the line and I'm gonna introduce him in just a second. Um, but I, uh, as I've been doing in the last few episodes here, um, you know, as a, as a podcast host, it always feels a little bit weird to jump into your specific domain, uh, you know, the topic that you cover on your show without acknowledging kind of what's going on, you know, in the real world. Uh, out outside and we're still in the, the middle of this pandemic and the the COVID-19 uh, stuff so I just wanted to again take take a moment as I've been doing in the last uh, couple episodes to thank uh, all the essential workers out there for um, for putting themselves uh, on the line for us and uh, you know I do have them in mind when, when we record these shows so I just feel like it's necessary to mention that before we we jump in so um, but without further ado, uh, I'd like to bring Steve uh, onto the call here. Steve, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. So Steve's from NASA, and I'm super excited to talk about innovation with you. And the first thing I'm going to ask you, you're gonna, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a second. But so you're you you're the deputy director for the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. So it, it's an interesting title. And so the first thing I wondered when I saw that was. It says collaborative innovation. 
And so I'm wondering, does that mean that there's a non-collaborative innovation and there's like a meaningful <laughs> distinction in, in, in that? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, they, that, that title, the, the title of our center of excellence was kind of selected before we came on and it was in the early days of open innovation. And I, it, it really is about how do we bring people from all disciplines uh, together to, to make innovation happen. Um, and specifically we focus on open innovation, which that is the, the big benefit you get from open innovation is that it, it brings diversity into the equation for innovation and forms this collaborative uh, effort that is actually really, really effective. So that's, that's kind of where it got its name. And I think in the early days, you know, before there was crowdsourcing and open innovation and open talent and gig economy, uh, there was still kind of a, uh, some fuzz around uh, what exactly we're going to call this. And that was one of the early terms that was used uh, back in around 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a background in engineering, correct? Like you, you've, you've had a notable uh, career in the space program. So tell, tell my audience a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your journey from, I feel like when I, when I read your profile and I've listened to you before that you're on chapter two or act two uh, <laughs> of your, your life moving on from the, maybe the hands-on engineering and management to this new kind of uh, space of open innovation. So is that, is that a fair read or t- tell me about the journey? Yeah. No, that's, that's a, a great way to describe it. Uh, I've been with NASA for 31 years this year and it started with mechanical engineering. Uh, coming out of Rice, I started at NASA as a flight controller, which was uh, its own kind of flavor of engineering and, and space operations. Uh, I did, did you have a pocket for... protector? <laughs> um, I, I was thinking of Gene. You know, <laughs> I, I did have. All right, I actually worked for Gene Kranz. That was one of my first bosses, and oh, that's uh, awesome. I worked. I worked on those green consoles that you see in the movies. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. So that kind of dates me a little bit, but um, yeah, it, it very much was a, a an interesting, uh, thrilling kind of, of job. We were just forming space station and trying to figure out how we were going to operate it. I was in the life support systems, which I it was very mechanical engineering type of topic. Um, I then, became kind of the software guy and moved over to software development uh, and did flight software for about seven or eight years, worked on like projects like X38 and time delay, did some of the version of VideoCon and, and uh, file transfer work up to shuttle and eventually station. Then I kind of moved over communications architectures and uh, kind of was the main architect uh, on the Constellation program for how we would have interoperable communications, kind of net centric, if you will. Uh, communications for future programs. Uh, And then um, I actually got the crowdsourcing bug before I actually got the job. I read Jeff Howe's book uh, on crowdsourcing back in 2009, 2010. And it really turned me on to uh, this idea of innovation and diversity and really how these new platforms are enabling uh, innovation at a level that just wasn't conceivable before. And so it really, when I read that, I, I just realized this changes everything. And NASA needs these tools if we hope to stay competitive. Uh, and so I just started diving in. I joined like five or six different communities. I started trying to understand why are people 
contributing? What do they have contributed? Who's on here? And about the same time, uh, two folks at NASA, uh, Dr. Jeff Davis and Jason Cruzan, were actually piloting with Inocentive and Yet2 and Topcoder uh, different projects to see is this stuff for real? Does it really work? They had benchmarked with a whole bunch of companies like Procter and Gamble and others, uh, and and they were having great success with this. So they piloted it. They had really great success with it. Uh, and so I started participating uh, in some of the employee programs they were starting up. Uh, and then in 2013, I happened to run into somebody uh, that I knew well from a previous program that was involved in this. And we had a great conversation. And she said, you know, we actually are looking for a, a new deputy. And uh, would you be interested? And, you know, uh, it, it didn't take much for me to, to say yes there because I really felt passionate about this. I felt this was something that uh, the agency needed. And so I just jumped in with uh, with both feet and, and have been uh, working it ever since, trying to figure out how much is possible with this and uh, trying new things. And we still have yet to figure out the full capacity of what's possible here. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're in this innovation space, right? So I, I think, so, you know, for, for the, the audience listening to my show, you know, I was, I always try to imagine exactly who they are. Cause you don't always know exactly who it is, but you know, we have, I, obviously there's people in analytics and data science and technical product management. You know, that's, that's kind of who I, I think about when I program my guests and, and this type yeah. of thing. I sometimes wonder, though, and just from conversations I've had, I think some of these like diverse teams and like innovation and like everyone likes to think they're innovative. (laughs) And at the same time, I think it can sound very hand wavy to to people with very analytical minds like, hey, we had a bread baker join our AI team and they came up with this incredible idea for improving my model accuracy by 15 (laughs) percent. Like, come on. And so how does a leader convince a board or an exec team or a boss that this diversity of thought matters? And secondly, how do you measure innovation competency if you're not hitting, you know, home run projects out like, wow, we revolutionized like whatever. How do you do that? Uh, I think that's a challenge. Yeah, there is so much to this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So get ready. Here we go. Um, (laughs) You just described kind of the challenge of our job, right? So NASA is populated with, you know, 60,000 when you count all of the the Boeings and the Lockheeds and the big contractors. And these are people that, that they are brilliant and they really are at the top of their game and they're innovative. And so the message of, hey, you need to bring in diversity to be more innovative is really uh, not received well by that crowd, right? For the, all the reasons you just cited. And in fact, I even talk about the innovation eye roll, right? When you start talking <laughs> about innovation, the first thing that almost everyone does is rolls their eyes because management always likes to bring up that we're innovative or we need innovation. And it just sounds so hand wavy, like you say. Um, And in a lot of organization, it gets lots of lip service, but almost no funding, almost no support. In most organizations, uh, including NASA, you're trying to get something out the door that pays the bills. And um, when, you know, ours isn't to pay the bills, but it's to make Congress happy, right? And Mm -hmm. when you're doing that, that is a really hard, uh, rough space for innovation, because if you're trying to meet a deadline and meet a budget, you don't actually have a lot of time for innovation. You don't have time for someone to raise their hand 
in a meeting and suggest something that you will then have to spend time and money on. Um, you're just trying to get enough of the problem solved to get something out the door. And so a lot of those teams are trained to immediately find the flaw in a problem or in, a, in an idea so that they don't waste time on it. And that makes it really rough for innovators because innovators require kind of a, an open space where you can actually put out ideas and talk about them and build on ideas that might not work to find those ideas that do, to bring in that uh, the, the people that are in different domains to try to synthesize. And it's a harder process. And those two things, when they meet in the workplace, create conflict because they, they just aren't compatible with each other. And so what we tell people is the people are all innovative. They all want to be innovative. But when you give them a, a priority of get this out the door, make make your schedule, it's really hard to, to still have that innovative context. And so what we tell teams is, hey, make a very conscious effort every once in a while to really switch gears and say, look, we're going to have, you know, half day meeting or two hour meeting where we're going to change the rules. And then in this construct, we're going to bring in diversity. We're going to not say no to it. We're not going to analyze why problems won't or uh, solutions won't work. We're going to start trying to figure out how, where are the, the solutions we need to be looking for, because sometimes there, there's some low hanging fruit that you really can solve problems rapidly, which then help, you know, uh, any problems along the way on, on uh, projects that are trying to get things out the door. But you have to change the context and you have to change the conversation when you do that. And yet then you have to use some real interesting methodologies about analyzing the problem. And there's some really great innovation methodologies. And you have to be open for new tools. Um, and this is where open innovation comes in. Open innovation is simply a new tool that uh, is really necessary now. What what we found is that as uh, as innovators in a given domain, as problem solvers, you as an engineer or a data scientist need the best starting place that you can. Right? You would you would never try to create the best solution by starting with a ten year old computer and not the latest and greatest. Uh, data science libraries or the data science methods, you would always start with the best tools, right? And we live in a time where technology has just exploded. And a lot of people, they hear it every day, they know it's a, a time of, of rapid advancement, but they really don't appreciate how big the change is. And so I have a couple of things that I tell people. 90% of all scientists that have ever lived on planet Earth are alive today. Wow. That is huge. And that is not something that was the case even 10 years ago. On top of that, if you look at the number of, say, patents that are being issued and applied for, um, a few years ago, it was a few hundred thousand. It is over three and a half million a year now. If you look at the curve, we have passed the elbow of the curve of an exponential curve and are just skyrocketing. Same with PhDs, same with number of folks that have technical degrees around the world, countries have become wealthier, put in place technical education programs, and along with the, the, the rise in population, there are more capable people doing research and technology work than ever before. And if you look carefully, you'll see a lot of the technologies out there are 
these building block technologies that apply to almost every type of company. So machine learning, cheap sensors, blockchain, uh, even things like CRISPR and drones are transforming almost every kind of company, every domain. And so what's happening and what we're seeing is these things are kind of coming together such that every research and development area in these domains is is actually taking these building block tools, which, by the way, many of them are very inexpensive for someone to learn and to use. You know, CRISPR is a couple hundred dollars to run a CRISPR gene editing uh, research. Uh, if you look at, at data science, a lot of those tools are free. Uh, and so there, that's all brought the barriers down. And so lots of work is going on both independent and corporately. And so what's happening is say in agriculture, you'll have somebody working on data science and drones and, and sensors in ways that they're really advancing the technology in a way that, that really could be used in many other domains. But say if you're in medicine or space like we are, and you were to hear somebody's presentation on the data science with these drones and sensors that they're doing, you you probably wouldn't say, oh, wow, we can use that because you wouldn't understand the domain. You wouldn't understand the context and they would use different language. And so what we're finding is that's happening everywhere. There are these latent solutions out there in the world that can make a huge difference for you in your one little slice. But you can't find them. You can't Google these technologies. They, they require someone that you don't know who they are that has a little domain knowledge in this one area like agriculture and another in your domain and they are able to connect the dots and, and recognize see that same presentation and say oh my gosh this can be translated to your domain with a few tweaks and then get you that 10x solution and it's interesting because we are seeing this firsthand we've run challenges where you know, we're trying to improve a solar flare algorithm. Uh, and we've got like a two hour prediction that we're trying to get to four hours. And the winner of that in the challenge ends up to be this cell phone engineer who had an undergraduate degree from like 30 years prior that he never used in heliophysics. But he was able to take that, that signal uh, to noise or that uh, extracting signal from noise math that they use in cell phones and apply it to heliophysics to get an eight-hour prediction capability. And it's this idea of bringing a technology from one area and bringing it in. Um, there's another great one that uh, Sub-C7, who uh, they work in the oil and gas field uh, area, and they actually had this um, underground pipeline inspection technology that they would take a ship out for you know a few weeks at a, a million dollars a day they would lower this van sized piece of hardware next to the pipeline. And for two weeks, they would do a, a run to inspect the pipeline segment. And they did a, a simple search on Nine Sigma with their crowd to find a, a, a alternative solutions. And within days, they had found a technology in the mining industry that was handheld that could actually do that same work in two hours. That is a hundred X improvement. And here's what Sub-C7 said. They said, if we hadn't found this technology, not only is this going to be a huge moneymaker for us, right? But if we hadn't found it and someone else had, we would be out of business today. 
And that's the big takeaway is that we live in this world where the technology is, is going so fast and there's so many solutions out there that can make a difference. They not only can make a difference to us, but our competitors, the ones that are going to make us relevant or not uh, by whether they're competing with us, they're also out there. And we're seeing companies failing left and right. If you look at the last 15 years of our most successful com companies, right, the Fortune 500, the companies that have made it onto that list, only half still exist. If you look at how long companies stay around, the average in 1958 was 60 years. It is now less than 18. Hmm. The, the, the rate of technology change and the old model isn't working anymore. You, you can't actually get all the skills you need, all the diversity. That's why innovation is so important now, right, is because it's happening at such a rate that companies that didn't used to have to innovate at this pace are now having to innovate in ways they never thought. And so what we tell our folks is, look, you want the best tool. Crowdsourcing is the best tool for finding the best starting place. And the best starting place is often um, that place that gets you the technologies you need, uh, gets the failures out of the way. That's the other thing I tell people is, is crowdsource challenges, they not only bring all this, these, this diverse set of folks to help solve your problem, they also fail really fast and in parallel. So if innovation requires failure, you get that for free in a crowdsource challenge. There's a, there's a case study I talk about a lot where Roche Diagnostics, this big pharma company, was trying out this, this stuff for the first time. And they brought kind of their 10 uh, top unsolved problems. And this one problem they had worked on for 15 years to get this one diagnostic tool to work they ran a 60-day challenge with a $20,000 prize, and it gets solved. But what blew them away was when they looked at all of the solutions that were submitted, everything that they had tried in 15 years of R&D and proprietary R&D had been replicated in 60 days. They got all that kind of failure in a 60-day challenge. And that was when that crowded incentive was only about 120,000 people. It wasn't even nearly, it's like 400,000 now. Mm -hmm. The large number th thing brings diversity and brings that at a scale that you start to up your odds of, of getting uh, successful solutions uh, and you get all that failure for free. Is there a, a particular um, atti attitudinal like position or personality that, that or, or skill that a leader who's working inside a company needs to have to farm that field that you just talked about. I feel like you need a certain type of person to open this door up and to be to, to know how to, for example, you know, we're not going to maybe we won't put out like the ultimate challenge of what we're building. We won't put out, but we know how to like curate, you know, just solving the wheel of the car. We're not going to elude that we're building a car, but but I not they they know how to like kind of tend to this garden. Is there a is, is that a person or a personality that you kind of think of that learns how to do this and 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 helps the company through that journey? I'm thinking about the employee, the yeah. internal employee. What what does that person look like? I think there's a look. It's got to be somebody who really um, is is looking around. I, I tend to think it's a generalist. 
what we're seeing now is specialists have a lot of hubris around expertise, and there's a lot of kind of confidence that the best in the field is is the way to go. And, and it has been for a long time, and there's value in that. However, somebody who kind of sees what's going on in the rest of the world and in this innovation space starts to see that there's a balancing act, right, where you really have to start um, bringing in the best tools. And, and these aren't the traditional tools, right, that you've got to start to bring in folks that, that you wouldn't have before just to be able to, to even scratch the surface on some of these, partially because a lot of the newer solutions are multi-domain. They're not, uh, you, you know, machine learning, for instance, like is going to be part of almost every industry and everything. Uh, there's a great book, Kareem Lakani and, and Marco Sadi just wrote uh, called Competing in the Age of AI that lays out this just once you read it, it's like, oh, my gosh, if your company's not trying to actually put this kind of digital backbone together with a, an AI factory that's going to actually be constantly improving, you're probably not going to be around in five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. I'm recording him next week, actually. Oh, really? Uh, Kareem <laughs> is coming. amazing. Yeah. He's, he's, I went to um, his book we, release. Yeah. <laughs> we've worked with him for about 10 years. Uh, actually, it's funny. We call ourselves the NASA Tournament Lab. Uh, and originally, that they had named their, their lab that, and we actually had to reclaim it. There's a whole thing there. But it's, oh, we have fine. worked hand-in-hand hand with his group uh, and continue to this day because they have just some amazing insights. Uh, but yeah, it's innovation is is being driven by this this big technology machine that's happening out there um, where people are putting automation to work uh, and there's amazing new jobs being created by that uh, but it does take someone who kind of can see what's coming and can see the value of uh, augmenting their experts with diversity, with open innovation, with open techniques, with um, innovation techniques, period, right? Uh, a lot of time, the expert teams we work with, they just want to dive into solving the problem. And what they don't realize is uh, they're much better off spending uh, a significant amount of time actually figuring out what the problem is. Um, problem oh, thank analysis. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> oh, right. I mean, I love the Einstein quote, right? If I had an hour to solve the world's problem, I'd spend, you know, 55 minutes figuring out what the problem is and five minutes solving it. That's, I think that's such wisdom because um, it, it really helps you focus. It helps you decompose the problem. Uh, a lot of times we tell people, look, if, if you really want to solve a problem and make progress and solving a problem is an interesting just statement in and of itself, right? Because what you're really doing is you're increasing the performance of a solution that's, that's trying to solve a problem. And so you're constantly trying to get the best performance, the lighter, the less weight, the, the faster, whatever it is. And so it's this moving target. And a lot of people uh, don't kind of decompose, well, what's keeping me from that high reliability? What's keeping me from that low power? You know, what's the one component that's the big hog that if I can just go innovate on that one thing, I get a 3x improvement in the whole system. Things like that, I think, are, are not played up as well. People don't tend to want to take the time to do structured and facilitated problem work. Um, and oftentimes, engineers have a little hubris where they think they can just do that. 
and they don't kind of draw on the right resources. Uh, I find resources like Google Venture Sprint or there's books out there about Tina Selig or uh, Ramon Vollings where there's cross-industry innovation techniques. And these are all really great ones to have a facilitator that knows how to facilitate a session, run through and kind of work. And there are these tools and you got to learn to use the latest and greatest tools. And I think in the data science community, which I think you focus on, that's a well-known fact, right? I mean, you know you've got to bring in the latest and greatest uh, tool sets if you're going to want to to be successful in the data science area. I would just say that extends out into the open innovation world where those are tools to bring in. Uh, it's kind of funny. This may be a little off topic to your question, but in data science, uh, I actually took a, a short course and, and really tried to. We actually did did some machine learning. And it became very clear to me why open innovation works so effectively on Kaggle and top coder and d driven data and these platforms that are crowdsourcing and doing challenges around uh, data science. Because successful data science, at least you're getting that right start, you have so many variables and so many permutations and so many ways to kind of chop the data up. And you kind of do, do this trial and error as part of what you do. Well, a crowdsource challenge basically puts that all on steroids so that you get lots of people trying lots of techniques and lots of different uh, ways to, to, to basically parse the data and come up with different linear regression uh, approaches and variables. And they come in with that. And what happens is the successful stuff floats to the top and wins. And so then as a data science running one of these challenges, then gets you hand delivered a starting point along with probably four or five other techniques that didn't win but actually came close that you can then start to use combinatory effects to get an even better answer. So we often tell our folks, this is the tool you need to get the best starting point. Because when it comes to this, this 5X, 10X, this idea of multipliers for your solution, what we say is that your starting point is the determination of how 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 far you're going to go it's that multiplier and that that starting point if you don't aren't willing to go put the work in it's kind of useless like an innovative idea that somebody kind of poses out there that no one grabs a hold of and then does the hard work of implementing that and bringing it to market is kind of useless so we talk about that one percent 99 percent perspiration right the one percent innovation or inspiration the 99 percent perspiration the part of that that's really important is that 1%, while it's a tiny slice of the effort, ends up being the multiplier on how effective that solution is going to be. So finding that right starting point is hugely important. You talked about this problem definition thing, which is something uh, that I think is repeated on this show quite a bit. You know, at, at, as a design, you know, as a product designer and, and, and a consultant, I, I would say the number one uh, problem that comes to me, like from from my from me running my business standpoint, is it's not a problem. It's something I'm just used to all the time. Is that someone comes in with what they perceive to be a problem, and the reality is they haven't really. They usually can't define the problem space very well to me, yeah. such that any possible solution we, we could we could even measure a solution. We wouldn't be able to agree on how to measure it because we don't really have clarity 
on what the exact problem space is yet. Yep. And so a lot of like the design process, uh, the human centered design process is really about clarifying that problem space. And then I always feel like the the solutioning part is so rapidly accelerated when you have that clarity of thought. And, and is this similar to how you see the the innovation space? I, I feel like it's a yeah. major, it's a major challenge. It's we need to build a model or whatever. It's like, no, a model by itself is is an output. We talk about outcomes over outputs, right? The outcome from the model is the thing we want. What is the outcome that we seek? That is tied back to the problem. The yeah. model or the you know the dashboard or whatever the analysis is or the you know a SaaS product, those are all things that potentially generate an outcome that is desirable. But if we can't define the problem space well, and what the outcome is, we are just going to focus on building stuff. Like, <laughs> I don't know. What, what's your take on that? Oh, no, that's that's 100% right. I uh, We see that all the time where we'll do workshops with, with groups where we really say, look, w- what is it that you're trying to do? And we'll get these kind of convoluted descriptions. And one of the first things we try to do is say, look, just describe to us what is the performance of your current product, right? What is your state of the art that you've delivered that is kind of the the thing that, that's your baseline that you're improving from? And it's remarkable to me how many uh, teams don't don't have that off the top of their head, right? They don't know how much power their system takes or how fast it performs or uh, what kind of reliability numbers. And, and what we tell people is, okay, now, once you understand that, now talk about what success is. What what does that look like? Imagine somebody coming in and undercutting you, right? And, and basically having a far superior. What is that just out of reach set of performance parameters? Is it a 10x uh, less power? Is it, uh, it, it, is it instead of uh, having a mean time between failure that's three months, it's three years? Uh, and describe, you know, what is it that you don't think is quite achievable, that's your new goal, right? Because now you can start to, to look at the gaps and ask the questions, what's keeping me from having something that can can run continuously for three years? Uh, what's keeping me from having something that, that works on picowatts rather than uh, uh, watts, right? What is it what are the components? What are the problems? And that starts to give you concrete problems, gaps, right? Uh, and, and that's where you can really focus innovation efforts once you define that, which I, I think that's all part of that problem analysis um, piece. It's not for everything. It kind of depends whether you're trying to develop your strategic kind of what do I need to go attack to get the best competitive product? Or sometimes we have people that just simply have problems that are keeping them from production, right? Uh, where they, they, they simply need to solve a problem. And in those, it's a little easier uh, to, to kind of then take that and really analyze it uh, to get it out. The other part that we find that's really important, uh, especially if you're going to go to crowdsource something, is that you don't always want to pose the problem directly. Um, there's a great story I tell in probably every time I talk is uh, – a potato chip uh, producer. I think you probably heard this one, um, where they came in asking for how to, how can we get grease off of our potato chips, 
And the very first thing that the innovation company did was they reworded the problem statement to be, how do you remove a viscous fluid from a delicate wafer? And by doing that, it invited that diversity, right? So now when people out in the, the world would re would look at problems that if you just said, how do I get grease off of potato chips? Most people would say, well, I'm not a food production engineer. I'm not a food scientist. So I, this isn't for me to work. But by kind of broadening that statement, you then invited the diversity of, you know, people working in silicon wafers, people working in biology, people working from all different domains. And that's, that's really where the solutions that you don't know exist, because within a given domain, you tend to have kind of plowed the fields that you know, right? And it's the mm -hmm. things you don't know you don't know <laughs> that, the that unknown, are actually <laughs> exactly. And yeah. and it's there's some great Warren Berger has this great book called A More Beautiful Question where he really says, you know, within a discipline there are these gatekeepers and the discussion is actually much more rigid than you would think. So in that one case where I was talking, vibration uh, was the solution that food production engineers had. They would basically vibrate a tray of chips as it came out of the vat of oil to shake off the, the, the oil, but that would break a bunch of the chips. Mm -hmm. And so they were looking for the solution. Well, it turned out the solution that came in that one was to vibrate the air around the chips at the natural frequency of the oil, not the natural, but the harmonic, and the, the grease would just fly off the chip. Well, that too was a vibration solution, but all those mechanical engineers who that was their specialty missed it. Like they didn't mm -hmm. see that. And so we, we talk about that, that, that kind of bubble that forms around a given domain and it was funny, we, we did a challenge for NIST recently on differential privacy. And that whole domain, there's kind of a sub-research domain out there in the world that universities and, and companies working this problem. And they really didn't think that any sort of crowdsourcing challenge would, would work because they just felt that that wasn't going to take them down a path that would be helpful. And they, they ended up doing this challenge on TopCoder. And it ended up being really successful and really changed the direction of how they plan to go attack this problem based on that challenge. And one of the telling pieces of feedback we got was uh, some of the com uh, competitors said, you know, we are actually researchers. We work for these lab managers, these PhDs at, at various universities, but they never would have let us work on, uh, on this solution. Like they direct which solutions they want us to go after. And so we could work on things that they didn't approve and we could fail on them with very little consequence. And that's one of the things that it takes for innovation, right, is you have to be able to fail and not be afraid to fail in order to find the real stuff. What I tell people as well is if you're not willing to listen to ideas that won't work and you reject them out of hand and kind of shut people down, you're probably missing out on the path to innovation because oftentimes the most innovative ideas only come after everyone's thrown in five to 10 ideas that actually won't work. But you actually have to hear those and they spark something new that then kind of helps you make the connections to the thing that will work. And so uh, that kind of listening to, to failure uh, and being ready for failure is a really important piece. 
I know I keep kind of diverging off your question. Sorry. No, you actually came. Well, you came back to something that I wanted to ask you about. And I love this quote, mean time between failure. And I was like, yeah. bang, that sounds like a metric of of measurement. And I had asked that earlier. How how yeah. could an organization or leadership measure whether or not we're making some progress with innovation when we're not getting the potato chip win? And I love it, by yeah. the way, that potato chips actually help us because I love <laughs> potato chips. <laughs> So, but tell me about mean time between failure and, and other metrics of implementing open innovation. Like how, how do we measure that we're, we're trying stuff and, and finding some way to, to quantify that for, for the analytical mind and the, the executive sure. mind that wants to see no, that ROI. I think that's exactly right. I, I think a lot of people uh, just kind of think about, oh, I've got a better product, but they, they don't take the time and effort to really come up with measurable metrics uh, that, that can be. So in mechanical engineering, there is this mean time between failure, which is based on a statistical model and testing where you get some distribution uh, and you come up with this number that's, that basically is a duration. You know, Most components, when you put them out there, will last, say, three months, and then you'll start to get a failure. Um, and so that's actually a, a, a pretty standard piece out there. But, but, you know, I think there's just as many of those in, say, user interfaces, right? How long does it take someone to, to kind of go through your, your user interface and use it? How many times do they make mistakes? Uh, how efficient are they? Uh, what, what is the, the, the capture rate if you're trying to get them to fill out a form completely? You know, things like that. Right. In the data science, there's really clear metrics typically, right? You're, you're always doing this uh, uh, kind of error rate that you're trying to do it for the prediction. And it, it's in data science, you're, you're sitting there trying to figure out what are the important metrics. Um, but yeah, in performance, especially when you're trying to look at how the data science or how the, 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 the technology is going to improve the product, you really have to nail down what is it that the customer wants? Do they want this to be faster? Do they need it to be lighter? Do they need it to be less power? Do they need it to be more reliable? Um, and, and oftentimes it's all of those things, right? Um, I, I use as my example a drone, right? Um, if you're trying to build a better drone, what do you need that to be? Well, you need it to be able to fly in any weather, right? So waterproof it. How long can it do that? How, how, what's the highest wind gust it can survive in? Uh, it has to last longer. You know, drones now have gone from like these twenty-minute drones to you know two hours uh, and, and and beyond. And there's drones everywhere. Um, but you know, the more payload you can take, uh, the, the the things like reliability. We talk about how fast can you switch it out? How easy is it to use? Uh, is it compatible in standards to other other things that it may need to pick up or camera mountings or whatever? All of those can be uh, measured in, in, I always think in terms of friction, right? The overall consumer model is I have a need or a desire and I have something that can meet that. And what's the friction uh, that, that's keeping me from the absolute best uh, achievement of those desires? Um, and that's often, you know, the cost of what it takes to, to bring that in and how, how good that that product is. And so often looking at well, what is it that, that is really not possible uh, that would be this kind of Star Trek version of it uh, 
and that kind of helps you kind of tune into what is important. But it, I will tell you, people struggle with metrics. People struggle with measurements. Um, yeah. It's kind of funny because uh, part of this whole effort has really turned us on to the, the new uh, kind of emerging world of work, which is uh, that there is this move to freelance work where almost more people will be doing uh, gig work than working for companies in about seven years. And in fact, this COVID virus has probably sped that up. And what's really mm-hmm. fascinating about that is you find these platforms where gig workers are finding work and they're using machine learning. They're using different uh, ways to match people to the, the to fit the work. And you're finding that they're recording data. They're finding metrics in people's performance that HR departments never tracked, right? And so they basically find how fast people are working, how well they work with different personality types, uh, very specific and granular uh, measurements of uh, skills and certifications. And they're using all that to capture individual workers' digital exhaust and using that to feed it back into machine learning to find matches with what people need. And, And this is opening up the possibility of anyone being able to kind of spend very little money to go out to one of these platforms and say, hey, I need someone who can meet with me for two hours to help me with this really technical problem on how to use quantum computing or how to you know use this new widget and literally pay you know, $500 to bring in an expert, help get you going on the latest and greatest technology, and then pop out and you didn't have to go through you know five months of HR pulling in some new expert that you really didn't have budget for. I mean, there's a, just a whole new model for how to deal with these new skills and new technologies that is really part and parcel of what I call the open innovation world, which is open talent, right? And so contests are great if you don't know what the solution should be or what skills you need uh, to be applied to this because it actually can cast a wide net to, to this big network of people. But if you know who you need or what skills you need, then these other platforms are really great ways to just focus that uh, and get an intent skill and, and expertise brought to bear on a problem. Right. But I, I would say I, I, you can argue this back to me if you disagree. Using open innovation to figure out a strategy like we know that we need to use, you know, AI in our company. We don't really know where to start. To me, that's a problem definition because you don't even know what you want to use AI yep. for. That is not the kind of thing you 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 send out, or maybe maybe you do bringing expert expert helps expert help to help you figure out what it is. It's not that they're going to come and tell you what it is, but they can facilitate the exercise of getting to it. This is work yep. that I do quite a bit. The solution space is a place to go out and and try and try and fail rapidly potentially in this open market. Uh, once you know what the problem space really looks like, is that a fair summary or? Yeah, it, it was interesting. I was in a forum with OpenAssembly yesterday where uh, Mike Morris, CEO of TopCoder, uh, said, you you don't want to ever try to outsource your thinking, right? right. The, the, the brains of your operation, that you can't do that. But what you can do is you can uh, bring in 
expertise to help you either, like you said, facilitate, you know, do something like the Google Venture Sprint methodology. Great way to kind of figure out what your organization's focus and strategy should be, right? It's a week long, they're facilitated folks. It's, it's very straightforward methodology and it brings to bear a lot of this innovation uh, and uh, diversity piece. You, if, if you are bringing together a team and are facilitating, you know, and you know that you're gonna be headed down a path that you don't have necessarily all the skills and expertise for, using some of these freelance folks to bring in and say, hey, I just wanna hire you for this session, this three hour session, to bring your expertise into it and hear what we're saying and help us get direction. Uh, you know, you have access to some just amazing people out there and why not tap into that, right? Uh, and in being cognizant of, hey, we've got a very technical team here, let's bring in an artist that also has knowledge about what we do or uh, bring in someone from HR that also uh, has a little bit of domain knowledge in our area so that you get these people that can help you connect the dots to things where somebody else may have solved this problem already or doing it the right way already. And, and why replow that ground? If the solution is out there, go find it. Uh, and, and I think that's a lot of times that piece of it is underserved, right? People think that their domain is so unique and what they're doing is so unique that they have to solve it all. And what you forget is it's a big, bad world out there. And there are often solutions uh, that are, are public, uh, right. Or that someone has experience with that they can help bring, uh, along and help you with. Yeah. Yeah. I have to just reiterate that because I think it's, it's so critical to have that problem space well-defined. And, yeah. and sometimes I feel like it, it is easy to go, to go native, uh, on, on this. And this is something, you know, I, I deal with I'm not vertically specialized in my work. I'm kind of horizontally specialized across data products. So I, I touch a lot of different industries and that when, when someone hires me, I think it's the fact that a lot of times it's like, okay, I don't know anything about patents yet, yeah. you know? So we're going to talk about, and I had actually a client that worked in this uh, collaborative patent research space. It was a, they did, you know, they did technology forensics and things like this but you bring a set of thinking and and uh, experiences that are different. And so by by coming in with that fresh perspective and you, you have some knowledge, it's not that you're just totally, you know, a random fit. We, we didn't yeah, go out yeah. and just pick someone with a completely different skill set and no context for what you're doing. But the the point there is to get get the problem space super well defined so that you can help the internal team figure out okay, this is actually what we need to solve for. Yep. You know, we had in our head, we're building X thing with patents or whatever. It's like, no, actually what we're trying to do here is do this other thing. And you, yep. you but you have to kind of dive in and then pull back out. And then yep. you come out with this strategy or this, what, what I would call like a design strategy, which is a plan for the work that needs to go happen, which in, probably includes some research and it probably includes some further refinement of that problem space. And, and, and this is a, it's still foreign. I, 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 it's a foreign concept. I feel to some, and it takes an aspirational leader who who can realize this sometimes that that you might be really too close right now to your yeah. own thing that you live. I mean, this is your job. You live, eat, and breathe this thing yeah. every single day, and that might be the part of your challenge. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, and and I think 
there's several pieces. I think there's a balancing act, right, that, that a lot of folks have. Uh, a lot of people that are very specialized uh, have to pull back out. They really need a generalist, somebody who can make the connection. Actually, reading a great book by uh, David Epstein called Range that is all kind of about the value of kind of this multidiscipline type of person. Because what we find now is the complexity of our world is increasing along with all these technologies. Now everyone is required to string together many, many more specialties than they ever had, which is really breaking the old HR model of I'm going to go get the handful of skills I need to go make my product and I'm just going to hire them. I'm going to capture them and they're going to work for me. There's a couple of flaws with that. One, it's almost impossible to hire all of the expertise. Just think about IT, right? You know, 10 years ago, you could hire one person that really understood enough of the IT world to, to service an organization. But now you've got cybersecurity, cloud work, AI, software. You know, it just is this endless set. And you don't actually always need a full person. And so how do you actually kind of get this kind of hybridization of all the skills you need and this is where this, this new freelance economy starts to, to start bearing fruit, because what you really need is your core to, to do the thinking and to, to know enough to, to go hire all the specialties. But you, you, if you try to hire all of those specialties in-house, that A, you're not going to probably be able to because there's so many of them. But B, as soon as you hire them, you've now captured them and taken them out of the learning curve in a lot of cases. Most companies' average spending on training is $1,000 per year per employee. Well, look around at what's going on in the world. Things are changing so fast that almost everyone needs to be spending time learning. I actually met one of Top Coder's lead freelancers uh, and was talking to him. And I said, uh, how much time do you spend learning new technologies and kind of just trying to keep up? (laughs) He kind of shocked me. He said 60% of his time. Mm-hmm. And I said, wait, how, how do you have time to do work and make money? He said, oh, I, I do fine. Because uh, he, he actually makes, I think, six times the average uh, salary of, of anyone in Greece where he works. He's like, I'm doing fine there. But the model has changed. Mm-hmm. And if we really want people to be high performers, I don't know if it's 60%, but they actually need to be training and learning much more than we give them time. Uh, a lot of people don't realize the metrics behind empl- keeping employees. You know, an employee, most people uh, that work don't realize their bosses know this, that they cost the company two to three times their salary because those people have to have HR and offices and air conditioning and security and IT, and all of that costs money. And the sad part is the average efficiency of the workforce is 37%, three out of every eight hours a day. And that's not because people are lazy. It's because we burden them with all sorts of IT and (laughs) training and compliance and uh, staff meetings. And and we're let's have a meeting to talk about that, Steve. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and what's. What the reason this this is all going to come to a head is because when you can reach out and still pay a freelancer two to three times what you pay your internal employee and still come out ahead, that's going to start to make a difference when you have to actually have those expertise if you hope to be competitive. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of remixing of what the workforce means and where 
you know, I, I kind of see HR and middle management, those functions moving to the cloud, if you will. And these new labor platforms are going to be able to do that much more efficiently, both in the, the people development piece, as well as uh, finding you that diversity of, of skills you need at the moment to get the complex work done. And it has to have lifelong learning uh, just built in, right? So there's a mm-hmm. there's a crowd called Paro.io that does finance and accounting, and they use machine learning to match their freelancers to work. But when they do it, they actually try to actually match somebody to something where they're on the lower end of the skill, so that by the time they finish that pr- that project, they've actually learned and reinforced a new skill, so that every time they do a new task, they're getting smarter. That is brilliant because we live in a world where if you're not keeping up with skills and adding to your skill base and upskilling, you're probably at risk of, you know, being laid off and having a really hard time living in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, this has been a great conversation. Uh, Where can people learn more about your work and and follow you? Are you on social media? Sure. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Steve Rader, if you just put in Steve Rader, R-A-D-E-R, and NASA, you'll you'll find me. uh, If you go to nasa.gov slash solve, you'll find where we post all of our uh, challenges and all of the work we put out there for the crowd and can learn a little bit more about what we do. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Steve Rader, uh, at Steve Rader. Uh, we have uh, at NASA Solve, too, uh, if you want to follow the, the official tweet. So, yeah, we're, we're out there. We're talking. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on. This is fun to talk about. Yeah, it's been really great. I will definitely uh, put all those links in, in the show. And any any last thoughts for uh, this kind of community of, of product managers and data scientists and analytics leaders uh, uh, that are listening right now? I would just say this. You may have heard some things today that that kind of make you uneasy, right? Um, That change is really overwhelming and these shifts in labor markets make everyone feel like, oh my gosh, the 40-hour work week's going away. Uh, What am I going to do? I will tell you that automation and all of this change is very scary. And the more I work it, the more hopeful I become that the future that we've got in front of us when we adapt to it over the next 10, 15, 20 years is actually got a lot of really great stuff about lifelong learning, about really working your passion and leaving all that kind of bureaucracy behind. And that, you know, we've con- these platforms are connecting global markets. So the robustness of work out there that anybody can do is really much larger than people think. There is lots of work and new and interesting work that's coming online every day. Uh, and if, if you just kind of immerse yourself in the idea of I'm going to learn, I'm going to try new things, uh, and I still will be okay, I, I think that is coming and it's going to be an exciting and uh, pretty amazing time. The, the, and, but because people will pursue more different things through their life, they themselves will start to internalize that that diversity that we talk about that's going to make individuals more innovative. So there's, I, I see some really exciting stuff here and I feel great about the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us today about open innovation. I really appreciate it. Oh, this has been great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. 
If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencingdata. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.